Good morning. Are you still making fun? We do have some announcements. We're feeding the homeless this Wednesday. We leave here at like noon. If you want to go. Um, and we're going to start doing it every Wednesday. We used to take the last Wednesday of the month off, but they're not going to do that anymore. They're going to do every single Wednesday. So, if you want to go, let me know. The next women's Bible study is March 16th. It's March 2nd. We're, and we need books, right? So, March 16th at 6 p.m. I, um, I'm, yeah, we can go over that still because we haven't gone over it because nobody was at the last one. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I'm going to move forward with a new book. The next men's study is March 4th at 9 a.m. We're going to go through the book Radical Prayer. The next youth night, March 9th, 6 p.m. Shannon will be here. And then, sign up for email updates. We send out an email once a week so you know what is going on, when things are coming up, or you check out online, thechurchne.org. There's a calendar there. So, with that, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for the work that you do in each of our lives. I ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would meet each one of us right where we're at. That your words would be spoken this morning here in the, through this study, not mine. That you would lead us and guide us. That you would encourage us. Uh, Lord, I also ask that you would protect us, not only physically, but spiritually. Don't let the enemy deceive us or lie to us or mislead us. Um, give us the strength to be a light and a witness to you this week. Um, help us to encourage um, the people that are in our lives, the people that you've brought to us um, the people that we interact with in our jobs, um, in our schools, that you would help us to be a light and a witness to you. It's in Jesus' name, pray all these things. Amen. Amen. So we are going to be all over, as usual. But the very first place we're going to go is John chapter 3, verse 16. One that you should know. Yeah, if you need a Bible, we have some up here. You can grab one. John chapter 3, verse 16. Yes, John 3, 16. Yes. Nope, just the Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yep. So we've been going, we finished up the book of Romans, and we're getting ready to start the book of Hebrews, I believe, um, if that's what God's will is. But we've taken a break, and we spent the last 
two weeks, and this will be the third week going through what does it mean to be a Christian. And so we'll continue on that study, this little um, mini-series of what it means to be a Christian. So to start that, we're going to look at John chapter 3, verse 16. Not 1 John, not 2 John, but John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. So, John chapter 3, 16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light. Their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for their sin will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see what they are doing. They are doing what God wants. So that sets the context of the study this morning, that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son to come down to this earth to be a sacrifice for our sins, to pay the price that we should have paid, to be our ransom, because he was willing to do that. He lived a perfect life. He was killed on the cross, but death couldn't hold him because the penalty of sin is death. But he was sinless. He never sinned. So death couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God. And when we believe that, we are saved. And we've been over this verse a few times too. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And these will be up on the screen. And if I get behind, Kennedy's going to say something right. So. So now that we understand the context of how we are saved, we're saved through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that that makes us um, right with God. But there's a process on our end. Jesus has already done all the work. All the work has been done. This is a free gift of salvation to us. All we have to do is receive it. So let's talk about that. And that's explained here very well in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. So, we've been over this a few times, but this sounds like a two-part thing. I believe um, in my mind, I've confessed it with my mouth, but I believe in my heart, and that's a reflection of a changed life, right? And it's not really a two-part thing. It all happens at once. 
when I believe who God is, and I believe that for many years throughout my life, growing up in the Catholic Church, I believed that yes, there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one, but it didn't change the way I lived my life. So while I may have believed in my mind and even spoke the words out of my mouth, I wasn't saved. I wasn't saved until I became, uh, until about the age of 30, when I realized that the way I'd lived my life, which was an awful life to live, was not in line with God's word, and it didn't change my heart. But when I let God change my heart, when I asked Jesus into my life, not just from a head knowledge, from a standpoint of I know what the Bible says, or I know what it means to be a Christian, that I believe in Jesus, but when I truly believe, and that's reflected of a changed life. I've repented from my old life, all the things, the awful things I did, I've asked for forgiveness for. And we've been over this. God forgives for every single one. There's only one unforgivable sin, and it's kind of alluded back in John, but it's the unbelief in Jesus. That's the only unforgivable sin. The only sin God won't forgive us for is not believing in his son. That's it. Every other thing we've done in life is forgiven, is taken out on the cross. And when God forgives us, he removes it from our record. He never brings it up again, right? We've been over this, that God's forgiveness is that the slate is wiped clean. It's like we've never sinned. We've never did any of those things. We have a new life. So when God forgives, he removes it from our record. Not that he forgets or doesn't know, but he never brings it up again. So it's not... Like when I forgive someone and they make me mad, I might bring this up again, whatever it was I'd supposedly forgiven them for. Well, that's not how God works. When God forgives, he never brings it up again. And we've been over that. We've looked at people in the Old Testament, King David, um, Sarah, Abraham, and we've looked at the sin in their life. But then when we read about them in the New Testament, God doesn't ever mention any of that. He only mentions the things they did in faith. Does that mean that the Bible contradicts itself when God calls Abraham faithful when we read in the Old Testament that he was faithless and he doubted God and questioned God? No, there's no contradictions. God just does what he says. Between Abraham in the Old Testament and the recounting of it in the New Testament was Jesus on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins. Every sin we've ever committed, every sin that we may commit in the future was all taken out on the cross. He paid that penalty for all of them. And when we ask for forgiveness, God removes them from our record. So while these people in the Old Testament may have sinned, Jesus died on the cross. And at some point when they asked for forgiveness, those sins, those sins were taken out on the cross. And when God recounts them in the New Testament, he doesn't bring them up because he does what he says he, do, he will do. He removes it from our record. That's the God that we serve. So along these lines of this believing in my mind who God is, understanding the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, three person, but one God, believing that Jesus died on the cross for me and for everyone around us, and that he rose again and is seated at the right hand of God, that when I believe that in my mind and it's reflected in my heart, I once lived a life that was wrong, I once lived a very wicked, evil life, but I've turned from that. I've done the 180, and I'm walking the other direction. And that's what it means to be saved. I believed it in my head, and I believe it in my heart. And when I believe it in my heart, that's evidence of a changed life. 
Now we've gone over this. That's not evidence of a perfect life. While I may never be sinless on this earth, I will sin a whole lot less after I've received Jesus into my life. So this is not a call for perfection. And we went over this a couple weeks ago. There's a difference between receiving Jesus, knowing the truth, and then willingly continuing on in sin. And God had some pretty harsh words. Can you be a Christian? Um, and the answer is yes. We read through that. That once you're saved, and we'll go through that again today, there's nothing that can separate you from God, right? You, once you're saved, once you've made this belief in your heart, in your head, you've confessed it with your mouth, you believe in your heart with a changed life, God never undoes that. He never walks away from you. He never leaves you, right? Even if we go on to sin, he still loves us that much that he never leaves us. And that's important to understand that our relationship with God is not transactional. It's not a relationship where I've done this and this and this, God, you owe me this. No. Or I've fallen short in this area and this area, God, I can see how you would abandon me or leave me. And the answer to that is no. We don't have a transactional relationship with God. We have a selfless relationship with God where God selflessly gave of himself for our sins. So we'll hear the term love today. And when God talks about love, number one, love is not a feeling. And the English word for love is not a one-for-one -one translation with the Greek. And all the New Testament, um, where we're at, it was written in Greek. And the way the Greeks translated love was three different words. Agape love, and that's the one that you're going to hear about when God is talking about his love. It's an agape love, and that's a self-sacrificing love. That's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. He willingly sacrificed himself um, for us. So he laid down his life for us. That's the love that we're talking about. Love is an action. It's denying myself, serving my spouse, and following Jesus. And that's what it is. It is not a feeling. The other types of love that are described in the Greek language are phileo. Phileo love, that's where we get the, the word Philadelphia. Brother, the city of brotherly love. That's a brotherly love. That's a, a, not a, that's a, a companionship love. So we have a self-sacrificing love. We have a brotherly love. And then we have the word eros. And, and that's an erotic love. That's a... Um, not what God is talking about here. That's more of a, a passion. I have a strong passion for football. So when we use the word love in English, you know, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love football, I love my truck, but I love them all the same, then I've probably done them a disservice. So where I love my friends, I love my wife differently than I love my friends, differently than I love my truck, right? So... So hopefully that is, we understand that. But let's see. So we kind of have this understanding of what it means to be a Christian, um, how we are saved, this change in our lives. Um, but now once we are saved, what does that mean? What does it mean to live this Christian life? Um, it's one thing to say that I'm a Christian, but does my life reflect that? And Jesus says 
in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, obey my commands, right? So if we want to make the claim that I love Jesus, um, can, I, can I make that claim and willfully live in sin? Willfully go down a path that I shouldn't go down? Can I make the claim that I love Jesus and then willfully extort money from my place of work, from my employer? And the answer to that is no, I can't make those claims. Those are not, that's not true. I can't claim that I love Jesus and say that I will um, treat others poorly. I can't make the claim that I love Jesus and then go on to gossip and slander others. I can't make the claim that I love Jesus and not be willing to forgive others. I can't make the claim that I love Jesus and then cheat others or become greedy. I can't make the claim that I love Jesus and then cause other believers to stumble. I can't make the claim that I love Jesus and have a relationship with a boyfriend and girlfriend that doesn't honor him. I can't make the claim that I love Jesus um, and not live a life um, that is being a light and witness to him. Not live a life of humility, not live a life of asking for forgiveness when I fall short. Because remember, when I become saved, I don't live this sinless life. I still sin. I still make mistakes. But when I fall short, do I ask for forgiveness? Am I willing to repent of that? So, When we become a Christian, though, we have this threefold enemy. And some of the enemy is already there. And that three-person enemy is it's a spiritual enemy. That's Satan and his, his demons. The Bible talks about that. We'll go through that. It's the world. The world becomes an enemy when you become a Christian. We'll see what the Bible says about that. And it's our own sinful nature. Our own sinful nature is at war with the, with the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk through that. So, to get started, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. we want to take it, what is this spiritual enemy? What does that look like? And what does God tell us about it? How how are we to live our lives? And that's what the Bible is. The Bible, one, points us to Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it all points to Jesus. And it's God's instructions to us. I like the acronym for Bible, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. These are our basic instructions from God before leaving Earth. There's no situations I've come upon in my life that can't be explained or guided through through the Bible. The Bible explains all situations that, that I could encounter. Everything that goes on in my life, God can guide me through, through his word, so, through his Holy Spirit, through his leading and guiding, through the work that he does in each one of our lives. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is Paul writing to the, the church in, Ephesians, in, in Ephesus. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So what Paul is saying is that the battle is not against each other. And so oftentimes in this world, 
People want to make the battle against other people, other groups of people, other individuals. And Paul is making it clear that's not where the battle is. The battle is a spiritual battle. It is fought um, in prayer, and he'll get to that here in a minute. But he tells us to be strong and stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against demons and principalities. So continuing on in verse 12, for we are not... So continue on in verse 13. So therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. And we've gone through this in another study, but just to briefly point it out, we're to put on the belt of truth. We need to speak truth in everything we do. Um, And I'm reminded of a story that we heard when we were at the men's retreat. And Pastor Matt was up there and he was talking about his F-150 gets stolen from the front of his house. You know, he walks out to the, the front door and he's looking and he walks back in and he says to his wife, he says, did you let somebody borrow the truck? She goes, no. Why? Well, because it's not out front anymore. So they realize it's been stolen. So they call the police and, and, uh, and they come and they're taking a look at it. And he starts rethinking in his mind, well, how did this happen? He says, oh, I don't think I locked my truck last night. And then he gets thinking further. He's like, in fact, I don't even think I took the keys out of the ignition last night. So he, here he is. His truck's been stolen, but it was unlocked with the keys and the ignition. And so as he's thinking this and the police are there and they're looking into it, he's calling his insurance company and his neighbor comes over and he's telling his neighbor what's happened. And his neighbor says, well, don't tell the insurance company you left your keys in. And it kind of, he has to think about it for a second, you know, because his neighbor says, well, if you left your keys in, they won't cover it. Well, that wasn't true. So he has this dilemma, but he doesn't know it yet. He has this dilemma. Well, should I tell them the truth or should I, should I lie to them? And God puts it on his heart. Nope, you need to tell them the truth. So when he calls the insurance company and they're talking through it and they're asking about it and they say, well, how do you think they got stolen? Was there broken windows? He says, no. He says, I left my keys in the ignition. I left the truck unlocked. He goes, and I realize that you're probably not going to cover this, but it is, you know, I I don't want to lie to you about that. And she says, the lady on the other line says, well, Just because you left your keys in your ignition and you left it unlocked does not give someone the right to steal your truck. And yes, we still cover this. Um, So he was, his truck is gone. It's gone for a couple weeks and then he, he, the enemy comes in. And that's what Paul is talking about here, that, that this enemy is coming against us and it often comes in our thought lives. It comes in our thought lives as in, you know, you'll never be good enough. You'll never be forgiven for this. Oh, you better lie about this because there's no way that this is going to be good if you don't. Um, or, you know, in this case for Matt, so now he's past this and he's waiting for, just waiting to see if they ever find his truck and recover it. And the enemy's in his thought life. When you get it back, it's going to be trashed. It's going to be ruined. This truck is going to be destroyed. So he gets a call from the police department a couple of weeks later and says, hey, we found your truck. We need you to come down and collect it. 
And he's on the way down. He's thinking, well, this is going to be awful. This truck will be trashed. It'll be destroyed. It'll be all messed up. So he gets there and he starts to walk up and the body looks good shape. Doesn't see any big scratches or dents. Gets to the inside and opens it up and, and it smells a little bit like weed. But he said that that wasn't the worst. And he, nothing inside is messed up. And then he opens the glove box. And inside the glove box he finds iPads and, and cell phones and brand new and some expensive colognes and he says to the police says hey you know this stuff isn't mine so well, that's fine we'll record it and then after 30 days or whatever it is if no one comes to collect it you know you can keep it so his truck gets stolen he's tempted to lie about it he doesn't god protects him through that the insurance would still cover it if it needed to be replaced then the enemy comes against him and says, oh, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be trashed. He gets to the truck. It's not destroyed. It's not trashed. And then, in fact, no one claims those iPads and cell phones that are in there and the expensive clones that are in there. So he gets those back. So not only does he get his truck back, he did what God had asked him to do, but he gets it back with a bonus, with a few thousand dollars worth of merchandise that is his legally free and clear. So... So while we get tempted to, um, by the enemy, that in our thought lives, that this is not a good situation, this will never work out, God can't help you through this, God can't forgive you for this, God can't use you because of what you've done, it's all a lie. And, and I've always, always be reminded of that story that he tells. So how tempted are we to, oh yeah, I better not tell the insurance company what I did. But... God is bigger than all of our mistakes. Even when we leave our keys in the ignition. God is bigger than that. And unlocked. <laughs> yes. God is bigger than all of those mistakes. So, And if his truck did get destroyed and trashed, the insurance company was still going to cover it. So, God is bigger than all, all, all of our mistakes. So, we'll continue on. Um, here in Ephesians, as Paul's continuing to, this is, the, this is the armor of God that he's going through. And we've done through this extensively in another study, so I won't go deep into it. Um, but additionally, all of these, addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows from the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. So what is Paul telling us to do? Paul's telling us to stand in God's Word, that that is important, that there is truth in here, and that when the enemy comes against us, we're to hold up our shield of faith. The enemy says this, but I know that your Word says this, God, and I believe that. That's my shield against the fiery arrows from the enemy oftentimes in our thought lives. We put on salvation as our helmet. That speaks of there is no headshots. There's no death blows. That God's salvation is eternally secure. There's nothing that will separate us from God. And that in this spiritual battle, what's the best way to fight it? And it's in verse 18, in prayer. Pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. And stay alert and persistent in your prayers for believers ever. So the most important thing we can do against this first enemy we're reading about, this spiritual enemy, Satan and his demons, we pray. 
the battle is not for us. The battle is for God. And Jesus has already won the battle. We just need to stand firm in that and believe that. So we'll continue on. And we're going to look at the next enemy that we face. And that's the world. And what does that mean? So John, and we have quite a few different verses to jump through. But they'll all be up on the screen. So John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. So Jesus makes it clear, these are Jesus' words, that the world hates believers because we belong to Jesus. That Jesus chose us to come out of the world. And we've been over this. This wasn't a select few, I hope I'm chosen. Who did Jesus choose? Well, we started off the study that way. John 3.16. God so loved the world. Every single person that he sent his son to pay the penalty for every single person's sins. So who did God choose? God chose everyone he ever created. But the difference is, some of us don't choose to receive Jesus, right? And when we don't choose to receive Jesus, then we are separating ourselves. We're saying, God, I want to live a life separate from you. And he will allow that. And he will give you the desires of your heart, no matter what they are, even when they're not good for you. God always gives us the desires of our heart. But in this case, when we say, I want to live a life separate from you, Jesus, I don't want you in my life. At the end of our lives, that's our final decision then God will grant that to us. And he'll give us a life eternally separate from him. And that's in a place called hell. And oftentimes, I think people think, well, this is be where I'll be with all my buddies. No, no. Hell is a place of isolation. And we've been over this right around Christmas time when some things had come up. But depression um, often is caused by isolation. And this enemy who is attacking our thought lives over and over again, wants to isolate us, wants to get us alone um, and get us to a place where we aren't around others, around other believers. And that's when the enemy wants to do the most damage, right? Because you can't have other people speak truth or light into your life. You don't have other believers. And the world will do the same thing. The world will come fiercely against you, that you are all alone, that you're the only one that would believe in some nonsense like this. You're the only one that would believe that, that this Jesus really can give you eternal life. No one else believes that. And there's times, there's been times in my life after becoming a Christian that I've felt the same way. There's just not very many Christians out there. I'm all alone. But then I'm encouraged because I run into someone who is living the Christian life, who's being that light and witness in the world that is so desperately needed. And I'm always encouraged by that. So, for believers, we're called to live a life and encourage one another. We've been over that in past studies, um, to live a life in fellowship with one another. And the reason we live in fellowship, in Proverbs 27, 17, it talks about iron sharpens iron, right? We're to sharpen each other in God's word and in the truth. So, so this world system, we'll touch on that a little bit more. First um, John chapter 5 explains it pretty well. That this we've now become an enemy to the world. But 
we're to take heart. So 1 John, so this is not the Gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commands. Loving God means keeping his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So we read where Jesus himself in the Gospel of John said the same thing. If you love me, obey my commands. And here we read that again. That his commands are not burdensome. So what does that mean? I think oftentimes to be a Christian or in this Christian life we try to live, we have this idea that we have to be perfect. And that will never happen. We've been over this where Paul, Paul who was Saul, became a believer and, and became Paul, became known as Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. Paul lived a life where he put Christians to death, where he persecuted them very severely. Um, Paul is known for saying there is no greater sinner than him, um, but then gets saved, and God uses him in a mighty way. God uses him to influence the majority of the known world at this time, to write the majority of the New Testament that we read is written by Paul. All scripture, all the Bible is God's breathed. God inspired it, and he used and worked through men to do that. So this man that, that writes the majority of the New Testament, does all this great work for, for God, talks about how he hates that he struggles with sin. That there's this constant battle between his life, um, his sinful nature, and, and what God's called him to do. And this is later on in his life. He's been a believer for many years, done many great things. God has used him and worked through him to do a lot, and he still struggles with sin. So when we struggle with sin as believers, does that mean that we're not very good believers? No, that doesn't mean we're not very good believers. But what we've always been taught is if you want to know if you're a mature believer, how long does it take you to ask for forgiveness from God first? Because all of our sins are against God. Does it take us... A day? Does it take us a week? Does it take us a month? Do we try and rationalize it and say this isn't that bad? That this sin really isn't that big a deal? Other people are doing it. It's not a problem for me. And that's a danger that we live in. And that's oftentimes what will happen. And when we rationalize it or try and minimize sin, that our maturity in, in being a Christian is fairly low. But when we are quick to confess it, ask God for forgiveness, and he removes it from our record and never brings it up again, when we're quick to do that, our maturity as a Christian is probably a little higher. Does that make sense? We've been over that a few times. So, so continuing on, 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For every child of God defeats this evil world. We achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and this belief is in my head, it's in my heart, it's evidence of a changed life, not a perfect life, but a life with a lot less sin. When I became a believer, my life had a dramatic change, and there was a lot less sin in it. There was still a lot of sin in it, but a lot less than before. 
And as time has gone on, God has cleaned me up little by little. But I didn't get cleaned up first and came to him. I came to him in desperate need. I came to him when I was eyeballs deep in sin, when my life was a complete mess and a disaster through my own actions. And when I came to him, he received me, which blew me away. There's no way to understand that other than God's love and that what he says in his word is true. Because if I was God, knowing on the other, being on the other side, I would have been done with me a long time ago. But he wasn't. In my time of need, I reached out and asked him for help, and he answered my prayers. He received me as his own child, and he does the same for each one of us. So, we'll look at a few more verses here as we wrap up. So John, the Gospel of John now, chapter 16, verse 33, I have this one verse. I have told you all of this, this is Jesus speaking, so that you may, let me start again. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So while the world becomes our enemy when we become Christians, Jesus is telling us to take heart. He has overcome the world. But what he's also explained to us too, and it's not a popular teaching, that they, we will have many trials and sorrows in this life. That when we become Christians, it isn't a life of everything's perfect, everything's good, there is no problem that Jesus is promising us we will have many trials and sorrows in this life. But he encourages us to take heart because he has overcome the world. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. So Jesus has overcome the world. While it seems that the world is caving in on us, all the evil and the wickedness that takes place, all of it is sin. Everything that's going on in this world, it is a spiritual battle. And it all goes back to the Ephesians chapter 6 where we started. That everything in this life is a spiritual battle. The enemy is constantly coming against us in our thought lives, mostly, and in other ways, but mostly in our thought lives, telling us lies about who we are, telling us things that are not true. And Jesus is encouraging us, take heart, I have overcome the world. And that overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Okay? So Jesus loved us overwhelming victory in this world is ours we just need to believe that that's that shield of faith god has made it clear in his word victory is ours do i believe that will i hold that shield of faith up when those fiery arrows come from the enemy against me in my thought life and that's the question that each of us have to answer and that is something that we will all wrestle with we all wrestle with different things in our lives things that we've done in our past things that we've um wish we could take away but can't and while we might not forget them god has removed them from our record and we can stand firm in that and that's that faith god makes us a promise do i believe what he says and that's what faith is faith is believing so continuing on here since we're in romans 8 we'll look at a few more verses Um, and then we have one more section we're going to look at 
where we look at our sinful nature. That's the third enemy. So Romans chapter 8, continuing on here in verse 38. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. So this is another verse when we speak about when you're saved, you can never lose your salvation. And this is another area that makes that very clear. There is nothing that can separate us from God's love. God's love is that sacrifice on the cross. That's right. Remember, that's agape love, this self-sacrificing, serving others love. That's the love that God is talking about here. So God is talking about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that when we receive that, there's nothing that can separate us from that. No angels, nor demons, nor fears, nor worries, not even the powers of hell can separate us. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's a big, big area, right? When Jesus says he's overcome the world and then he makes it very clear there's nothing that can separate us from him. When we've asked him into our lives, he never leaves us, right? So now we're to the last enemy. We're to the, our, our own sinful nature. And we'll see what the Bible says about that. So 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his Son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. So that's important. This is all we go through many areas in the Bible, but we want many things, not just one verse to make a doctrine off of, but many areas that point to the same thing. And it's all pointing to the same thing, that our belief in Jesus is the most important thing. We'll finish up here in Galatians chapter 5. And we'll look at our, our sinful nature. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligations to the law of Moses. Oh, I didn't put that sorry. up. Yeah, sorry. Candy, you should go say something. So. Uh, I wasn't following. Pardon. I might have missed it. I think we missed it. So. Yeah, so. So, this is 
Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, is writing Galatians here, and he's talking about this, this opposing forces, that our sinful nature is, is coming against what God has asked us to do. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us, and our sinful nature, our flesh, our own desires, want to remove us from that, want to distract us from that. And then he'll call out here in verse 19 what some of those are. So when you follow the desires of your sinful nature... The results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. So he's made it very clear the things that we're not to do and the things that we are to do. And that our lives will probably forever, on this side of eternity, will probably forever be in conflict with these two things, with these two groups of things. So I can tell my life, if it's set in my life, if it falls under the first group here, right? Verses 19 through 21. Those are the things that when I'm living in that, I'm not living the Christian life. I'm not being that light and witness. But when I move to verse 22 through 23, the things that God's Holy Spirit produces, that God's leading and guiding produces in my life is love. And that's that self-sacrificing love. I'm going to deny myself, pick up my cross, and serve others and follow Jesus. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. So I'm reminded of someone who, who brought an accusation against another person and, and was concerned that they were showing favoritism at work because this person, was, this person who was placed in a position of authority was bringing food to another person. And, but it was only to them, not to anyone else. And the reason they were bringing food to him is because this person was struggling, came from a family who struggled financially and, and couldn't afford it. Um, so oftentimes would go without breakfast in the morning. And so this comes up, or this person in a position of authority is showing favoritism to this one person. And that's illegal, and, and you should be worried about that. So we call and our attorneys and, and check into it, and it was kind of foolish afterwards. Um, but our attorney had to remind us, Matt, there is no law against doing good, Right? So there is no law against being kind to others. And I like how Paul says that. There is no law against these things. When we're living um, the way that God has asked us to do, there's no fear of any laws that we may or may not have broken. So, so verses 24 through 26. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. 
Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another to be jealous. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. So the Spirit should be leading every part of our lives. What God is saying is there's no, I'm going to give you this part of my life, God, but this part is mine. I'm going to do with it what I want. No, God is asking for all of our lives, for all of our hearts, a complete surrender to who he is. And who he is is a very loving, compassionate God. He is not an angry God, not a fierce or jealous. He is a jealous God, and he is a fierce God. But he's not fierce against us, against the people he loves. He loves us. He's willing to forgive us. Now, when we are in sin, there are consequences for our sins. And I've found that out in my own life. That there's consequences for the actions I've I've made, the decisions I've made, the actions I've taken. But God is still with me even through the consequences. So, I think I told you Galatians was the last section. I just have maybe one more section. I know, you're rolling your eyes. I did not roll my eyes. So, Romans chapter 6, verses 5. Since we have been united with him, and he's talking about Jesus, in his death, we are also raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the powers of sin. So now that we have this, we know that we have this sinful nature, and it's at enmity, it's at war with the Holy Spirit, and that that's an internal struggle in our lives, that we're tempted to, to live out these selfish pleasures, um, and God is leading us to live this selfless life. Um, and while that temptation may seem too big um, to overcome, God makes it very clear here, that when we become children of God, sin no longer has a power over us. So I can think of my old life, sin, in the form of alcohol had a huge power over my life. And as much as I would love to have, have gotten rid of it to say I'd never drink again, it just never happened. It was too strong. It wasn't until I became a believer in Jesus that those powers were, um, those chains were broken. That through Jesus, and God's making it clear right here in this area of the Bible, that through Jesus, his work on the cross, when we believe in that because of who he is, that sin has no more power over our lives. It is powerless. And now we can willfully walk in sin. It's not because we're forced to. It's not because we're a slave to it no longer. So. So. You should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Don't let sin control the way you live. Don't give into sinful desires. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve in sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So your whole body, so use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right. For the glory of God. 
And lastly, this is where we do finish up. This is the very last one. This is the most important one. So if you lost it somewhere in this study, you haven't made all the connections, this is the most important connection to make. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This is one you should have highlighted. If you don't. I know. You should. This is important. This is where it all comes back together. Are you ready? You have a highlighter? Do you have a pencil? You have a highlighter? Okay. I already have Okay. So I'll leave it up on the screen for a little bit if you, you still need to find the address. The but, address? That's yeah, that's the address. This is the address. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. That's the address. Is so Second se- Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. <coughs> this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That's the most important part of all of this. It all gets summed up in Jesus. And that when we ask Jesus into our lives, we become a new person. That old life that we lived is gone, and our new life has begun. And so many times in our lives, we want a fresh start. And I'm very thankful for the fresh start that he gave to me. I'm very thankful for all the work that he has done, for the willingness to take away my sins, to remove them, to give me that new life, um, to give me that fresh start that I need. And that through this life, and we've been over this, and we hit on this a lot this year, that when I want to become a Christian, I can go through life lukewarm and mediocre. But when I want to become a Christian uh, that gets into his word every day, that spends time with him in prayer, then I become a Christian who is that light and witness to others. And that's the life that we want to live. So the most important thing we can do is, number one, believe in Jesus. Ask him into our lives. And when we do that, we're promised this new life, a new person. The old life is gone, and our new life has begun. And that's the most important part of all of this. That's where it all starts. So if you didn't highlight anything else today, highlight that. Yeah. Yeah, just... Do you, have, do you have a question? Do you have no, a comment? I just have a comment. This, that particular verse, I remember highlighting it because when we were at Calvary, um, like, I don't, it's just a comment. It's just, we were teaching in children's ministry, and I'm like, it, that was, I don't even know how it all came together, but that's one of the verses, and I'm like, wow. And, I, I remember it because then we had a named Natalie and Garrett's baby shower and just um, they asked they that was a gift they had a Bible and they asked to put your favorite verse and that was it. There you go. I I can't say I know where the address is all the time. Thank you for giving me the address again. You're welcome. <laughs> you have a question. Um, two. Okay. So the first one is the unc the unforgivable sin is not believing in him. But what if we decide we want to believe in him? Does he 
forgive us then he forgives you for all of your sins so remember when we went through we did the study on the unforgivable sin and it was and we looked at the, the story of the the wedding feast so God has this wedding feast and he, he gives us this parable and what a parable is is a story and God uses stories to teach us um, different lessons because they can have different not different meanings, but they can have a deeper meaning as we look deeper into the story. So he gives us the story of the wedding feast, and he says to go out and and invite all of, all of my friends and family to the wedding feast, and then they don't show up. So then he goes out and he opens the invitation to everyone, tell everyone in the streets. So that was his example of the Jews um, not believing, not receiving Jesus. So he opens it up to the whole world. and And so now some of the world has come to this wedding feast, but there's one person that came, when you went to a wedding feast back then, you had like special garments. Like um, if we were gonna have a wedding, we would provide everyone with a set of clothes. Is how it would work. So there's one person that came in wearing their own clothes. And they said, no, you can't come in that way. So that's like saying, the first thing you have to do is believe in Jesus, then all your sins can be forgiven. It's not out of order. You don't get to come to God your own way. He's spelled it out for us. So I don't get to ask God for, to forgive me for my sins, whatever they are, if I don't believe in Jesus first. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And then when you were talking about the things he Why does wine represent his blood? Like in communion? Because uh, at the Last Supper, he had the, the bread and the wine. That was the, the last meal that they ate. And he, and he himself said, this, is, this wine represents my blood and this bread represents my body. And that we were to take communion after that to remind us of him, to remind us of the sacrifice that he made on the cross. Does that make sense? Yeah. It happened at the Last Supper there, and that it's a representation when we take communion mm -hmm. because there has yeah. been a lot of stuff with the I would say the Catholic Church. They think it physically. Yeah, well, the Catholic Church believes that the blood, that the wine and the bread turn into his actual blood and body. But the, they, that's a thing. But so there's there's one area in, in the Bible that kind of. That says that, where he says, this is my blood, this is my body, yeah. given for you. But this is why we believe, we look at the whole Bible, right. from Genesis to Revelation. So where else does it talk about that? And the other places it talks about that, it says that um, this is meant as to represent my blood, my blood and my body. So does that make sense? Yeah. So if I took, if, if there were no other place in the Bible it talked about it, in just the one section that says, this is my blood, this is my body, maybe I would believe it that way. But since I have many other places in the Bible that speak of it as representing his blood and body, that's how I interpret it. That's how I understand it. And how we teach it. Yeah, but do you know why, why he would say the Oh, why, did, why is it wine and not... Juice. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, apple juice or cranberry juice because oftentimes we get we get look harder into this but oftentimes in those times 
wine was used because the water wasn't always good to drink. So you'd use wine and during the fermentation process, it kills the bacteria yeah. that's in the water. So that's oftentimes, because um, even Paul in the New Testament talks about drinking wine and he tells Timothy, says, Timothy, don't forget to drink a little wine for your stomach. Um, so it would kill some bacteria in his stomach. So it wasn't necessarily the way we look at it now is, is this alcohol beverage where we're getting drunk. But it was used to clean water. So it was pretty common for them to um, have wine at their meals. Again, and not that's that wine. Reading all of what's in the Bible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's some. Yeah. It's yeah. And God meets them right where they're at. God meets us right where we're at, and He's meeting them with where they're at culturally. So that doesn't mean He condones things, because people often twist that. Well, Jesus turned water into wine, or Jesus is here at the Last Supper with wine, so it makes it okay for me to drink. But we've gone over that. Yes, you have the freedom to drink, but not get drunk. But you're also not to stumble other believers, right? Is that your question? Yeah. Do you have another question, or are you? No, just those two. Just those two. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Dear Father, I just thank you for this time to come together. I thank you for this time to <coughs> study through your Word. I ask that you would speak to our hearts this week. That you would lead us and guide us. I ask that you would continue to bring healing. To my mom, that you would continue to guide the doctors, that you would watch over Scott and Pam, that you would bring healing um, and comfort to them. And I ask that you would just do a, a miraculous work in Pam's life, that you would take away that, that cancer and that sickness. You would guide those doctors. You would um, bring healing to Kathy. You would guide the doctors in her life. You would bring healing to Christina's heart, guide the doctors in her life. You would continue to um, bring healing to Bonnie. Yes, you would watch over Matt's knees and Joey's knee. You would guide Joey in the treatment plan. Um, yes, you'd watch over the coffee family. That you would give them patience and peace and wisdom and forgiveness. Yes, you would bring healing to Greg's life. You would bring Greg to come to know you. Yes. You would um, watch over those in the PTSD EMDR counseling. You would give them the patience, the strength and endurance to see it through to the end. That you would grant them the the changed lives through this counseling. You would give strength and guidance to Ming this week. Um, you would help us to have the right words to speak. You would encourage us in friendship and fellowship with each other, encourage us in, in good deeds and good works. You would watch over the sheriff's department, the police department. You would protect them physically, but also protect them spiritually, protect their families, Lord. Um, They are on the front lines of this spiritual battle. They see all, um, just all the nastiness that's out there. You would protect them and protect their their home lives. I ask that you would just guide us to a, a church that we can support. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things.